Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. This last section is uh, what we've been discussing for the past weeks now on God's restoration of his wayward people. People that have gone astray, people that have left the, the, his, his fold, people that have sought after other gods. In a sense, people that thought other gods were better than the God that watched over them continually. This was the people that turned their back on God, left God, abandoned him, and sought after the goods of other people and other gods. So this is a sad moment in Israel's history because up until this time, they're deserted. God himself has abandoned them too now and has left them for their gods. But the incredible part of this is from verse 14 and on, as we read, we find that God is doing the reconciliation with his people. A people that have left him and abandoned him originally, now God is reconciling them back to himself. This is an awesome thing, and I want you to think about it this way. For instance, you've been offended. How, how many of you guys have been offended before by somebody? Most of us here have been offended by people. It's, it's, not easy, it's easy not to be, uh, or it's easy to be offended nowadays, uh, especially in today's culture. Uh, there's people that have offended us, and if you think about it, you may have an arch enemy, maybe from childhood, maybe that bully that was always bullying you around, or whoever it may be that you may have kind of bitter emotions towards. Now, as Christians, we shouldn't have any emo bitter emotions, but if we are all true with ourselves, there, there may be that tension that we have towards somebody. It could be an old spouse, it could be a friend, it could be a brother, it could be anyone that we've kind of had a bitter, bitterness towards or something happened to us from that other person. And can you imagine you in the room alone with that other person? Now this is a, a tension moment, right? A, a moment of tension when you're in the room with somebody who has offended you and has done wrongly towards you. And this isn't just a simple offense. Let's take it a little step further. Let's look at it in the context of the Bible. This is a strong offense, a, an offense of complete uh, leaving you and, and negating you and, and abandoning you and causing harm on you as Israel tried to do toward her God. Now that offense isn't taken lightly, correct? When you get offended by somebody, it hurts. It hurts your heart. It hurts your person, and you become a little bit bitter towards that person because of the offense they did. Now, if you're alone in the room with that person, you would expect one thing to happen. One of the first things that you would expect to happen is that person to break down and say, you know what, Jonathan, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have done what I've done, and please forgive me. And you as the good Christian man or the good Christian woman would be like, you know what, God has taught me to forgive so I will forgive you. However, this is not the case here. God has been offended. God has been turned against. God has been uh, kind of even forgotten. And God 
is the one doing the alluring. God is the one doing the seeking. God, in a sense, is the one doing the reconciliation. The offended party is the one being trying to be reconciled with the other person. Now that, my friends, is what God is doing in this case. But as we have mentioned these entire weeks, this characteristic and attribute of God must be shared by us. So it's cool to say, wow, God is amazing. Look at how great God is by him reconciling a people that were far from him, a people that have rejected him. How cool is it to see that God is restoring them and reconciling them back to himself. Awesome, God, you're amazing. That's why we worship you. So it's, it's kind of cool and it's kind of easy to say that. But what happens when that becomes us and God demands that from us? So in a sense... We need to be those who also reconcile ourselves with other people. That's why this marriage in, in Hosea and Gomer is so important because it doesn't just distance God off in, the, in, in some spatial realm where we can't ever achieve anything. God is telling us, look at what Hosea is doing to Gomer. A wife that has left him, a wife who has abused of him, a wife who has taken her, her goods and given them to other men, a wife who has been continuously unfaithful and yet Hosea is having to bring her back and reconcile her to himself. It, it touches strong on who we're supposed to be before God. So it's easy, in a sense, it's easier to forgive somebody, right? Because they offend you and you're just like, you know what, I'm not even going to carry this burden in me. I'm just going to forgive, let go, and move on. Uh, you're not going to carry that weight. You don't want to be bitter, so you just kind of let it go, right? I forgive you. You don't ever have to speak to them again. You don't ever have to talk to them again. You don't ever have to see them. But you say, you know what, I'm a good Christian. I go to church, and yeah, you know what, I forgive. Uh, it's behind me. Uh, all that bad stuff is behind me, and, and I'm just going to move forward. Amen. Glory to God. Let me, let me move forward and, and forget about my, my enemies and stuff like that. So it, it becomes a, a bit easier to forgive. Sometimes it's hard to forgive somebody, but sometimes it's easier. But then the tricky part is having to reconcile yourself with that person. I want you to put yourselves in Hosea's shoes and, and trying to reconcile yourself with an enemy or with someone who has mistreated you and has offended you. The thing is that you have to start the reconciliation. That's not the easy part. That's something God could do, right? Because that's God, and wow, God is amazing. God uh, is all-powerful, so let him do the reconciling. That's okay. But what about us? What about us sharing in that characteristic of God? And so that's why this portion of, the, of chapter 2 is so amazing, because throughout this entire trial, throughout this entire marriage, God has been seeing restoration at the end of it. He hasn't grown bitter. He hasn't grown cold. He hasn't forgotten. He is seeking restoration with his wayward wife, which is Israel. And that's why he says in verse 21, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in that land. Now you may be saying, like, what is going on there? What does this all mean? Well, 
If you take it in context with the rest of the chapter, you remember in earlier parts of chapter 2, God has already shown himself righteous. God has already shown himself as, as being a loving God. And God has already shown himself to be merciful and faithful. We talked about that last week. And why has he shown himself to be all those things? Because the people have abandoned him. And so he's brought justice over his people. He's brought love over his people. And he's also been faithful to his people. So now, throughout this deserted moment in Israel's history, if you go back prior to verse 14 in chapter 2, you'll find that Israel is in a dire state. It, it's that moment when Israel is kind of just done. She's in the desert, no gifts, no grain, no food, no celebrations, no joy, no happiness. She is done. She's stuck in the desert. And at that precise moment is when God decides to bring restoration. And so he brings her from a begging woman to a woman that will be overflowing with blessings. He brings her from an idolatrous woman to true worshiping, to a true worshiping wife. He brings her from her mourning to rejoicing. He brings her from her poverty to abundance. He brings her from the wilderness to greenlands, to the pasture lands. And that's what this, these verses are so important for us. Because it reminds us of who God is. And although God wants that from us, it's also very important to understand this is who God is. See, we don't come here to just listen and learn about a distant God. This is a God who cares and a God who was merciful and faithful to people who were not deserving of it. God is showing himself to his people time and time again. And the word of God itself teaches us that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God can bring people out of the wilderness into green pastures. Those verses in, in, in Psalm 23, the famous verse of the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. It's easy to say and memorize, but it isn't until you go through the valley of the shadow of death that you begin to understand what it means to rest in green pasture lands. That's what God is doing to his people. So these verses in 21 through 23, they're a little bit odd or different for us. We don't really understand what it means for the heavens and the grain and the wine and the oil and Jezreel and what is this all about. It's a little bit difficult to, to understand at face value, it's, a, it's in a poetic structure, so if you're anything like me, we are not poets. I am not a poet at all. I have yet to ever write a, a poem to my wife other than roses are red, violets are blue. There's nothing poetic about me, and so you may be a little bit confused with what's going on here, but this structure is very poetic. And I had to do a lot of study and research to understand this because, once again, I'm not a poetic person. And we see the beauty of it by God using the very things that have harmed Israel or that he himself has taken from Israel to bring back into the picture. So the structure goes somewhat like this. In verse 21, you see the heavens. And the heavens 
God says, I will answer the heavens. And what that means is that he is going to tell the heavens, in a sense, to provide the necessary rainfall for the earth. If you look at 21, it says, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And in a little bit, we'll talk about what that word means answer but this is kind of the structure the heavens provide the rain for the earth and then you keep going in verse 22 the earth shall answer the grain wine and oil so because the rain comes down on the earth the earth produces and has a a good harvest and it provides food and and resources for the people and in verse 20 22 it keeps going and the and the wine and the oil and and they shall answer Jezreel Jezreel is in representation of the people of Israel themselves and so this harvest will provide for the people their needs will be met so once again so that you guys could understand this this uh, this structure heavens bring rain to the earth earth produces harvest for the people And the people's needs are finally met. Now, why is God saying that here? Well, that's why we set it up as chapter 2 did. Prior to verse 14, the people are in a desert. Everything has been stripped from them. They are in the worst state of their lives. They are in the worst circumstance of their lives. And now God is doing all of this to provide for his people. Once again, the strong reconciliation for his people. Now the people will be planted, what it says in verse 23, at the top of verse 23, and I will sow her for myself in the land. God is going to place Israel not in a desert land, but in a fruitful pasture land, in a place that is abundant. And this is what God does. The more deserted, the more chaotic, the more a mess Israel is in, God is most faithful to provide her the best. In a sense, God is moving heavens and earth for Israel and for his people. What is this word being used here in Verses 21 through 23, this word answer. It's an interesting word because if you read it, it doesn't really make sense in, in this, in this uh, type of setting. You look at verse 21, and in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens. Were the heavens speaking to God? Were the heavens asking questions? Was the grain, was the earth, was the wine, the oil, was Jezreel asking questions? Why is this word being used? And so when there's an awkward word, when there's an awkward structure, you got to pay attention to that. you got to do a little bit of investigation. It's not that hard. You look it up in the back of your Bible or in a concordance, and it's pretty simple to figure out by yourself. But it just doesn't make any sense in this poetic structure. And once again, since it's poetry... It means something different. So I did a little bit of investigation on this just so that you guys could be clear on what this word means. And and this word jumps out. So God is answering the heavens. And in the the Hebrew, this word is often described in a divine response to a distress call or a call for plea. So in a sense, in modern terminology, it's, it's what happens when the 911 operator answers the call. 
Typically, those who call 911 are in distress or are in a plea or in a dire circumstance or are in a moment of life and death. So the first thing you do is pick up the phone, tell Siri to call 911 or dial it yourself if you're not that lazy. You, you call for help because your life is in danger. It's a call of distress. It's a plea for help. And when the Lord answers, this is the beauty of it, he's answering right here the way it's set up. It's this divine intervention. This is what David said in Psalm 118 verse 5. Out of my distress I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. It's okay to call out to God in our deepest, darkest moments of our life. But the Lord is not obligated to answer the call. And in most cases, when he doesn't answer the call, it is because of a rebellious heart. So in a certain, to a certain uh, extent, when we call out from our own rebellion, would God answer? And is God good for not answering? Well, we always know that God answers in righteousness and does righteous through his act because that's who he is. But sometimes he won't answer, and the reason for that is it's our own rebellious heart. Look at what 1 Samuel 8.18, you could just write these uh, passages down so you don't have to go there. 1 Samuel 8.18, and in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Again, out of a rebellious heart, it's, it's like we mess up, we do everything bad, and then we're like, God, why did you leave me? Why did you abandon me? Why did you let me marry this person? Why did you let me take this job? Why did you provide this for me? And it's our own choosing that got us into that mess. We did it to ourselves. And sometimes we think that God doesn't hear. Well, it's not that he can't hear or he's deaf. It's that he's choosing not to answer. And that's okay because he is God. This word answer, when, when God stays silent, he's retracting and holding for a moment his mercy and his compassion. The prophet Micah says it this way in three verse four, in chapter three, verse four of Micah. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them of that time because they have made their deeds evil. That's that's harsh. He will hide his face from them. The, the psalmist would, would also cry out in the 30s. If you look at the Psalms in the 30s, it's, it's God hiding his face. And it's typically because the person, David in, 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 in that case, was in evil, was doing evil deeds. And God was hiding his face from them. But this word answer, when it is used and when it is when God does answer and does respond, it is typically because it is a product of who he is in mercy and in compassion. His favorable look looks upon the person who is pleading for help. And God just doesn't stand there with his arms crossed saying, I'm just going to let you suffer a little bit more just for the heck of it. 
just because I'm God, I'm going to let you go through that a little bit more because I just want to see you squirm a little bit. No, God, when he answers, he is showing his compassion. Once again, because God doesn't need to answer. We can't put God in, in a chokehold and make him answer. We can't put his arm behind him and come on, be like, come on, God, come on, God, come on, do this for me. It's not the way God works. But when he does, he answers with his compassion. And, the, and David says in Psalm 69, 16, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good according to your abundant mercy. Turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress Make haste to answer me. So when he does, it is because of his steadfast love, abundant mercy, and compassion that he does it. It isn't because we forced him into the corner and made God do it. God answers because he loves. And his people who are in dire circumstances, who are in the midst of life and death, God looks upon. And he can say, you put yourselves in that situation. And that situation may have caused much harm, but you are not exempt from salvation. I'm still going to save you. And so we see this coming off and God saying, I will answer the heavens. I will answer the earth. God is going to respond to these calls of emergency, God is going to respond to these claims and pleas for help. In, this, in, this, in these brief verses, we have this word five times. Three verses and we get this answer word five times that sets off a chain reaction of God's abundant mercy over the people's lives. After judgment and a ruined agriculture, God answers and then restores them. God restores the ruins of Israel and then showers them with many, many, many blessings. Usually, as mentioned, these pleas for God to answer are for salvation. God, save me. Save us. We need Redemption and salvation. And the only one who can save is God. In these dire circumstances, in those, in life's most begrudging moments, in those times where things are at their worst and at the lowest point in life, the only one who can answer the call for salvation is God. And in this case, the only one who can save his people, Israel, is God. Hosea pleads from a place of devastation. What we're reading here in verses 21 through 23 is a silent plea for help. Their situation and circumstance is a mess. Their fruit and crops have been dry. They are in the wilderness. They are in a desert. I don't know who, 
who of you have been in a desert before or grew up near a desert or have visited a desert? It's lifeless. If you guys can picture it, it's just lifeless. And, and usually the life that exists in a desert is life we don't want to be around. Snakes and all these creeping things that, that can kill you and, and hurt you. It's lifeless. And that's where Israel is. There's no life around them. There is nothing for them. And then here in verses 21 through 23, there seems not to be a call. We don't read a call, do we? Verse 21 through 23, and in the day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, I will answer the earth, and in the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow for her myself in the land. There's no call here. Never once do we read Israel calling out to God. It isn't like Israel is saying, God, forgive us, please. Or in the context of Hosea and Gomer, it isn't Gomer saying, Hosea, I'm sorry, I recognize my mistakes, I'm, I, I'm a mess, I, I'm, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, please, please, please bring me back, bring me back. We don't see that here. So why is God answering if we don't see it, if there is no call? Well, this is the beauty of our God. Because out of a silent plea, out of a moment of just complete devastation where there is, in their sense, no hope, no reason to live, no reason to go on, they've kind of come to that realization where they're just like, God doesn't care. Why even try? Why would I even bother? I have messed up to the worst degree. I deserve everything that's going on around me. I deserve to die. There's no reason for me to ask for hope. And in that moment, God's sovereignty and loving kindness and justice and faithfulness that we studied so much these last five weeks comes to play. And the prophet Isaiah says it like this, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet not speaking, I will hear. God knows the situation of his people. And even when the people can't ask God for help, God intervenes in that moment and brings salvation. God knows and God cares. God isn't ignorant of Israel's circumstance. God isn't ignorant of Israel's desert. God isn't ignorant of what's going on. It isn't like God put things on, on pause or just moved on and said, you know, I'm just going to look for somebody better. I'm just going to try the Egyptians. I'm just going to try the, 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 the future Persians. Maybe the Persians will love me rightly. Or maybe the Egyptians. Or maybe the, the future Romans or the Greeks. God is seeing from heaven he knows the situation of his people and he responds to them even when they do not call. That is the beauty 
of God. And that's why I, I said to you in the beginning, think about that person that you, that you just can't be friends with. That, that there's just so much animosity in you between each other, between that, that, you don't need, that even if you look at them, your, your stomach hurts. I don't know if you guys have met people like that or have people like that in your lives, but you even look at that person and your stomach, you, you lose your appetite just by looking at them. It's just, ugh. Man, why did I have to see that person? He, he just ruined my day, ruined my week. Why did I have to see him on Sunday, on the first day of the week, and now my, the rest of my week is ruined? But imagine in that moment, even if that person is not seeking to for, ask for forgiveness, even if that person is not seeking to be friends with you, even if that, in that moment that person wishes you were dead, what if you were to seek reconciliation with that person? Right? It just doesn't make sense to us, right? Like, why? Just leave him alone. Let him go that way. Let's pray that we never bump roads again in our lives. Let's pray that he moves to Alaska and I'll never see him again. But what if God calls us to reconciliation and restoration? And again, that's the importance of this marriage concept. It isn't just about our marriage relationships. It's about our earthly relationships. So that's what God is doing in a sense. Israel has given up. No reason to ask for salvation, but God intervenes. That's the greatness of our God. And then in verse 20, at the end of verse 22, we get this subtle reminder again in this poetic structure that the earth will answer the grain and the, and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. Now, if you remember Jezreel, we studied this in chapter 1. When we went through chapter 1, we studied what Jezreel meant in chapter 1. And it's interesting that God doesn't use Israel. He uses Jezreel, not, not Israel's name. He uses Jezreel's name. And it's interesting for that because in, in verses chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, the way Jezreel is presented, if, if you remember, just go there real quick to chapter 1. Just turn the page, chapter 1, verse, verses 4 and 5, it says, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Well, why is God reusing this name? Well, this son of Hosea and Gomer in chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, like we mentioned, if, if you weren't here for that day, uh, look it up on our app or on YouTube so you can listen to what that name means a little bit in more in detail. But right there, the context is one of the meanings of Jezreel is bloodshed. The valley of Jezreel is the valley of bloodshed where, where kings were murdered for idolatry and and so when the name Jezreel, the location, the city of Jezreel is mentioned, it brings back 
thoughts of bloodshed. And one of the comparisons that we, that we brought to light just so that we could understand a little bit better was, was what's going on in, 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 in Chicago, in the south side of Chicago, violence and, and bloodshed. So it's like when you mention the south side of Chicago, you immediately think of, of you know, the police and, 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 and violence and, and all this stuff going on. So in a sense, when they mentioned Jezreel, that's what came to mind. A place of violence, a place of, of bloodshed. This is where blood was spilled. So now, in verse 22, it says, they shall answer Jezreel. And we have to understand, why is God using this name again? Why is he mentioning this place of bloodshed? Well, Jezreel not only means bloodshed, Jezreel also means God. So, so there's a double meaning behind the name of Jezreel. It's bloodshed, a place of bloodshed, and God sows. So it's interesting because in verse 23, at the top of verse 23, it says, and I will sow her for myself in the land. God is going to sow his people on fertile ground. God restores this name to mean Production, multiplicity, and blessing, prosperity. So the name doesn't change like the other kids' names do. The name stays the same, but now the meaning is different. It's a feeling of, of relief. Think about a time that you messed up, and the only thing that you're known for at work is for being that guy that messed up. Oh, man, you're the one that brought the whole production line down. Man, remember that day back um, Black Monday 2013? You're, you're the guy that messed up our entire company and cost millions of dollars to our company. Can you imagine being that guy? Everyone looks at you and says, oh, there, there comes Israel. There comes Mark. There comes Double Stuff. Yeah, that guy ruined everything here. We're surprised he's still here. Imagine being that guy. But then imagine being that guy that God restores or, or the boss restores and, and now you do something good for the company or, or now you're known for bringing the company back on its feet or now you, you do a, an amazing invention and, and you bring uh, millions of dollars back to the company so now your meaning changes. You're not known for your faults anymore. You're not known for the errors of your past. You're not known for the, for the disgrace of your previous history, now you're known for what God is doing in your life. And so the son takes on that meaning now. He isn't going to be known as a place of bloodshed. Now the son will be known as a place where the people of God will be sowed and they will multiply. His name will be synonymous with prosperity. Oh, that's such a, that's a change. You know? That's, man, from being the guy that ruined everything to being the guy that brought prosperity, that's a, impressive. That's, that's a name change. But then that's what God is beginning to do in his people. He's starting to reverse things. He's starting to restore things. Jezreel is, is, is now focusing and, and living in the promise of God. God is going to provide for the people. So not only, if you read here in verse 22, it's not only grain, wine, and oil, but that implies 
food, and that also implies, like we read in chapter 1, that also implies prosperity. Remember what we mentioned about wine? Wine in ancient times was a delicacy, was something only the rich people did, was something only the bourgeoisie did. It was a, a high-class, established uh, portion of material that made, that caused for celebration. And the vineyards that were established to bring these, uh, the, this, these grapes and these fruit to, to harvest was for a moment of prosperity. And so when they gathered together with wine, it was to celebrate. Think about this. What did we say about Israel? They are in a desert. They, are, they have no life around them. They are at the point of death. They're so depressed that they don't even ask for help. That's how bad they are. But yet God restores them food, gives them energy, restores the wine and the oil to cause them to celebrate and, and, and establish uh, wealth and prosperity within their context. God gives them in abundance. God doesn't just say, oh, you know what, okay, you're, I forgive you, let's move on. No, God restores them and inverts everything. The names of their sons and daughters are being reversed. The meanings of their names of their sons are being reversed. Their situation and circumstance is being reversed from a life of poverty to a life of abundance because they're planted on fertile ground now. God sows, and so Israel will be sowed in fertile land. This is a permanent reversal. So God has been reversing and inverting everything up until this point. And look at part 2 of verse 23. And I will have mercy on no mercy. Remember, that's the first son. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. He shall say, you are my God. There is a permanent reversal of order here. Lu Ruama, as we mentioned, was the meaning of no mercy, as mentioned here in verse 23. Lo Ami is now Ami, my people. And the final response of God's people is, you are my God. You are my people, God says, and the people respond you are my God. That's the beauty of God's restoration in that he shows himself to his people and when he finally reveals himself to a people whose heart are ready to receive the salvation of this God, they respond with this attitude of saying, I know you now. I see you now. I know my God. It doesn't they don't respond in a sense like this. Thank you for giving us wine again. Thank you for giving us our money back. Thank you for giving us food to eat because we were starving. Thank you for everything that you've provided in abundance. That's not their response. How they respond is by saying, I know my God now. So the best part of God giving and restoring is that our eyes are opened up and we finally get to see the revelation of who God is 
in our lives. And that's the best part. Because we could be poor, we could be in poverty, we could be ruined financially, we could be living in the worst circumstances. As long as we see who our God is, we are living in abundance. That's why you look around sometimes and you see people that don't drive BMWs, that don't, that don't live in the north side in million dollar homes, that don't live uh, uh, flashy lives, that, and, and, they're, and they're the most happiest people on earth. They may be in, in a house in a basement somewhere, and they know God, and they're happy and content because God's with them. So material goods isn't a translation of God being with you. It's God himself demonstrating peace, hope, and inner prosperity that sustains people every day. Some of the most grateful people I know are those that don't have the biggest luxuries in their life. And some of the most ungrateful people that I've met are those who are really well off. Not to say anything against people who have wealth. I'm just saying what I've seen. And we pray that God can use that to bring them hope even in the midst of their wealth when they feel like they don't need to cry out to God. So this is what God is doing. A people that were rejected are now accepted. A, he's bringing them back after they pledge allegiance to their God. That's what it meant in, in earlier in chapter 2 where God's saying, I'm going to put a new heart in them. They're going to be able to, to repent and come to God and, 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 and seek for forgiveness. And because they do that, he becomes their only savior. He becomes their only king. And he alone becomes their only uh, focus of worship. They become, they are no longer idol worshipers. They worship the one true God. Kind of like the song that we just sang. There is only one God over us. And they begin to worship him alone. God provided for them when they could not provide for themselves. God changed them when they could not change themselves. And God saved them when they could not save themselves. That is what God does. That is what God did. And that is what God keeps doing. What I love about this is that their full restoration is found in the Lord. No one else could save them. They could call to no one else because no one else would be able to save them. And that, my friends, is what Paul clearly picks up on. The Apostle Paul, obviously in a new, co in a new covenant text and in a new covenant source, goes back to Hosea and he looks at those precise verses that say, you are not my people, uh, you were not my people, now you are my people, you were, not, you were not giving mercy, now you are giving mercy. Paul goes exactly to that because God does the same thing for New Testament people like you. By God's grace, we are invited into his story of redemption. That's why Paul picks up on that so clearly in, in Romans chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. He says, you guys were undeserving of grace. You guys were undeserving to be God's people. But grace translated through the Son of Jesus Christ on a cross provided you access unto the throne of God. People who were undeserving. 
people that were not in tune or in step with the Spirit of God. People that oftentimes kind of just say, Sunday morning, man, Sunday morning, I just really want to sleep. I don't want to wake up, get dressed, and go sing songs and go listen to some guy talk about the Bible. He's been in Hosea for like five years now. It's like, how much more can we learn from Hosea? People who were undeserving, God showed grace to. And then Peter picks up on the same theme of Hosea, and he repeats what Hosea says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and he says, through Christ we are reconciled into a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. So we're invited into this people, lo ami, now ami, my people, we are invited into this people of God by God's grace. You and I never deserved it. You and I could never save ourselves. You and I could never fend for ourselves. It is only through grace in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, through grace on the cross, that we now are okay before God. And that is why we celebrate. Amen? All right, let's stand up and let's put this in prayer. How many of you guys can uh, give it up for the band today for, for that song? That song was awesome. There is one God. So, you know, I'm going to make the band come back up. And just uh, while we're all saying hi at the end and, and shaking each other's hands, they're going to be singing, There is one God over us. But let's pray. Father, We can't translate your goodness, your mercy, and your compassion over our lives. It's hard. The reasons we don't understand. But that is what the mystery of grace implies. This one God, this holy, sovereign, powerful, savior, mover of the universe, God, sought to reconcile an enemy like myself to him. Why? I don't know. But we rejoice in the hope of your glory. We rejoice in your salvation. Thank you for not abandoning us completely. Thank you for showing your judgment on us in righteousness. And thank you for being faithful to your people. So now we are your people, and we can say, you are our God. We put ourselves in your hands forever. For the remainder of our lives, change us, mold us, watch us, love us, and keep us grounded in you. In Jesus' name. And we all say, amen. Amen, everyone. Have a great Sunday.